Okay. Um, all right. Uh, this morning, we're actually getting very close to being done with Exodus. Uh, we actually have three weeks left. Um, we have, we have uh, this week. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to be, April and I will be gone. It's our anniversary. Uh, not that we often go away on our anniversary, but we actually decided let's go away this, this weekend. Our anniversary is actually on Sunday. And then we were debating, should we be gone on Sunday? And uh, I like to be back by Sunday if I can. And I got a call from the pastor, and he said that Blake Boy's father, Michael Boy's, will be in town next week and would like to talk at one of the Sunday school classes. I was like, okay, that's perfect. So uh, you guys have Michael Boy's. I think he's spoken at Summerfest, right? Um, and so he's going to be in here. And so uh, he's not talking out of Exodus. So he's going to present something. So um, you can look forward to that. Um, and then we have two weeks after that. And then we're done with Exodus and we're also done with the semester. We take a break for Christmas that starts on the 10th. Seems a little early for me to break for Christmas, but then I'm not in charge of putting up all the decorations at home and cooking all the, f I don't know, I, there's all sorts of thing, busyness at the season. Um, and then we have to decide what we're doing next uh, semester. So I am open to suggestions. I've had one and that's to go through the book of James. Uh, my only hesitation on that is that's what Pastor Scott did when he first came to the church. And we actually, years ago, most people won't remember this, but at the very beginning we studied James in Sunday school. If I remember, it was one of the first books that we had covered. So it will be something out of the New Testament. I was thinking about Titus, and then I found out that that's what Men's Equippers is going to be doing next semester. Is Titus uh, next semester in the spring. Um, um, anyways, so... Um, we have decisions to make before January, I do, but if you have suggestions, that would be great. Um, last week, we talked about the contributions for the tabernacle. Um, for those of you who were uh, not here, uh, the principle uh, that was outlined was that God desires generosity and a willing heart when you're giving. Uh, he, he desires that you... Uh, respond to the moving of his spirit because he kept talking about as any person's heart is stirred as their spirit is stirred within them um, God called for them to be generous and then we go to the New Testament and we discover that um, God actually does uh, in spite of all of the concerns we have about the prosperity gospel God does promise blessing to those who give but he promises us blessing, not so that we can have, but so that we can be more generous. So God is, uh, when we give generously, God responds, sometimes materially, sometimes in other ways. There's passages that talk about that the reward will be at the end. Um, you'll be rewarded in, in the, the kingdom. You'll be rewarded when you... Um, uh, when we leave this earth, but there's also passages that say that God will provide abundantly. But he does that so that we can be more generous. So we are generous so that we can be generous, and we give so that we can give. Whenever we turn it around and say, I'm being generous so that God will bless me, so I'll have a whole bunch for myself, I, I think we've missed the entire point of Scripture. Uh, the whole point is that because God was generous with us, 
he gave his own son. Our lives are to be marked by generosity and giving back to him, and we have an opportunity to do that this evening. Um, we asked the question last week, what's the mark of Christian giving? And the, the actual mark of Christian giving is joyful giving. If you're giving and you are not joyful when you give it, then um, maybe it wasn't the right amount. It was too small or it was too big. And you may need God to continue to work, but we're to be generous and joyfully generous. That was the, the lesson from last week. Um, and the people responded and they responded because they understood the importance of having that tabernacle, the presence of God with them. Uh, this morning, we're actually going to go back and do something that we didn't cover before, although it was mentioned uh, last week. And that is, I wanna look at um, the builders of the tabernacle. The builders of the tabernacle um, are mentioned in Exodus 31. And I, for the life of me, can't remember ever hearing anybody ever teach on these two men. Um, the two men who were charged with God to be the, the ones who did the designing work of the temple, where they designed it and built it. Um, I only remember ever hearing their names mentioned once, and that was in a series on spiritual gifts, and the pastor was wondering if there wasn't a spiritual gift of craftsmanship because of this passage. Um, but I don't think that's what the point of this is. So we're gonna go to Exodus 31, and then we're gonna jump over to Exodus 36, and then we're gonna try and draw some applications uh, for ourselves. Um, Moses, in Exodus 31, is still up on the tap, in the, uh, on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and he has just finished receiving the plans for the tabernacle. Um, and in chapter 31, um, the very last thing that gets done is that God appoints two men to oversee that work. So in, in Exodus 31, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name uh, Bezael, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, uh, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Aho. Ahasamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded you they shall do so Moses gets the plans but God chooses the craftsman and he chooses uh, Bezael and he chooses Aholiab and he sets them apart for the work of his service by the way, it, I think it's something kind of interesting here and it'll tie in later, but the very next thing that God does 
is talks to the people about the Sabbath. He's appointing craftsmen to work. And the tabernacle, of course, is uh, really uh, the, the represents the presence of God and the path back to God, the way that we, we uh, keep our relationship with God. It really represents salvation because everything in it points to Jesus Christ. Uh, from the very beginning when you walk in and there's a bronze altar where you offer your sacrifice to the uh, laver where you are, are bathed to the fact that only priests can go into the tabernacle um, and in the New Testament, we are priests. <clears throat> and in the tabernacle itself, you have the table of showbread, with, um, which represents Jesus being the bread of life and supplying all of our physical and spiritual needs. Jesus, then there's the lampstand. Jesus is the light of the world and provides guidance. There's the altar of incense, which represents the prayers that go up to God, the, the work that we have of serving him. And then of course there's the veil and only the high priest can go into the last part, which is the Ark of the Covenant and the uh, mercy seat. But we know that Jesus in the New Testament has rent that veil. We can go boldly before the throne of God. It's a picture of salvation all the way through. Um, and so uh, this tabernacle, which is so important, before, e even, uh, even there, God stops them and says about the Sabbath in verse, 20, in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among the people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout the generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Um, second. All right, now, um, I, I also want you then to jump over with me to Exodus 36, where we were last week. Um, uh, a lot of this same information is repeated. Um, I just want to read the beginning part of it. It's in verse 30. It says, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezael, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs and to work in gold, silver, and bronze in cuts, cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, that's something different from before, both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahasamach, the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver by any sort of workman or skilled designer. And then he goes on to say that he does the same thing with the men who will be working. 
in chapter 36, verse 1, Bezael and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all the Lord has commanded. Um, if you jump over to chapter 38, um, we find um, that it seems like Aholiab is in charge of um, the, the fabric of the tabernacle because it says in verse 23, um, with him was Aholiab, um, the son of Ahasamach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue, purple, scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Boy, these guys would be handy guys to have around. Huh? When you look at all that he was able to do. Um, so I, I wanna take a little bit of time and talk about these men, but then I wanna apply it to uh, us in the new covenant. Um, interesting, these two, Bezael, it says he is the son of Uri, who is the son of Hur. Um, everybody remember who Hur is? He's the man who stands beside Moses with Joshua and holds his hands up, right? That's Hur. Hur is one of Moses' right-hand men. He's second behind Joshua. Uh, when Moses goes up on the mountain, he sent, takes Joshua with him, but he sends her back down with Aaron to keep control of the people. Uh, Aaron dropped the ball. It doesn't say anything about her. Uh, don't know if her was trying to say no. We don't know anything about him, uh, what he was doing then, but it's interesting that his name is very prominent. When you think about her, um, you think, uh, I think, of faithfulness. He is right there beside Moses. He's the one who comes beside Moses and supports him when he needs support, um, and that's her. Uh, his son is Uri, and his grandson is Bezael. Uh, Bezael's name means um, in God's shadow, or uh, God's shadow. Uh, it can be written a bunch of different ways, shadow of God. Um, but the last part of that name is God, El, and the first part is the shadow. He's the shadow of God. And Yuri is, uh, means light, my light. So it's an interesting uh, heritage. Her is known for his faithfulness. His father is my light. And Bezael dwells in the shadow of God. The idea of being in the shadow of God is in the protection of God. It's a picture of God covering and watching over. This man has been set apart. Uh, not only that, it tells us two important things about him. He is called by name. And he is filled with the Spirit. Um, he is the first person in the Bible where it says he is filled with the Spirit. Uh, it doesn't say that about Abraham. It doesn't say it about Moses doesn't say it about any of the others, but this is the first man who is filled with the Spirit. He has a job to do, and God has filled him with the Spirit. Now, it specifically says the Spirit of wisdom and craftsmanship, but God is superintending the building of this. Um, the other one is a holy ab, um, and his name means uh, Father's Tent which is kind of appropriate since he will be building the, um, the tent that God will dwell in. Um, 
What is interesting about both of these men um, is that God has set them aside for the work of the, the tabernacle. Um, the tabernacle is so important to God because it represents um, his presence among them and it represents his, uh, like I said, the, in this, the path back to God. It represents um, being reunited with God. It's the way to get back to God after you have sinned. Um, it's the way that God communicates with his people. And it really is a picture of salvation. And the point is that God is not only the architect, the planner, it's his idea, but that he also makes sure that everything is done properly. So Moses has the plans, but how do we know that it's gonna be done right? It's because he has filled Bezael with his spirit and he has taken Holiab uh, and filled him with the spirit. It says he's even uh, gonna guide the men who are, are at work. Now, there's a lot of things we could learn from all of that. Looks like Jay's having trouble reading my writing. You having trouble reading my writing, Jay? I, I missed father's what? Father's tent. So uh, his dealing with, he is building his father's tent, the holy, uh, holy uh, the God the father's tent. Um, I, I think there's a whole lot of uh, lessons that can be brought out of these two men. Um, the, the first one, I think, is that God does care that, that things that are done for him are done quality and done well. Um, however, um, there's always a balance. I know when we're building the, the uh, building that we're building, you know, how we, we want to make it functional, we want to make it nice, but how much money do we spend um, on all of the nice parts? But I do think, you know, like on decorations and stuff, um, and we have to be careful with our, with our money, but God wants quality. Um, if you're going to offer a gift up to God, it should be a, a, a good gift. It should be a quality gift. Um, I think sometimes we accept shoddy workmanship, and that we have to be careful of. Um, when we give to God, we give our best. Um, I, th I think there are principles here as well about God's plan uh, for his, for salvation. The tabernacle is entirely God's idea. Salvation is entirely God's idea. Um, the plan of it is his idea. And the design of it and even the guiding of the building of it is God's idea. And these two men represent that. Uh, God is involved in every part of that. Um, but when I was studying this, I, I was asking myself the question, okay, so we've got these men, maybe we have some that are involved in our building, we've been men who've had skill in guiding us through the something they wouldn't have had to deal with, the permitting process and dealing with the city and working with contractors and all the rest. We've had some incredibly skilled men, people who've come together and figured out how to do the financing. We've had architects, we have builders. If you had a chance to visit the building, it's gonna be, it's gonna be beautiful, it's gonna be functional. We've had some, some real skill, but I, I think there's a much deeper uh, lesson that comes out of this. In fact, it was interesting, I was, I was thinking about this. Um, 
there was something that really jumped out about me that Baal, uh, Bezalel is filled with the Spirit, or the Spirit is there. There are a number of great works that God has done. And each one of them, I think, deals, uh, begins by telling us that God's Spirit is involved and ends with the idea of the Sabbath. Um, it introduces the idea of God's rest. Uh, the first one is creation, the physical creation in Genesis. Remember, what does it say at the very beginning? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void. What's the next line? And the spirit of God hovered over the waters. God's spirit was present at the original creation. So this is one of the great works of God, the physical creation. And we see that when God is creating this incredible universe that we live in, we see the Spirit of God hovering. And then we see at the end that God institutes the Sabbath, or God rests. We come to this passage, and God is now designing the tabernacle. And really, this is the next great work of God. We say, but it's a building in the wilderness. No, this is more than a building. This is a picture of the salvation that he is going to offer. This is a, it says in Hebrews, a, a shadow of something that is much greater. And God wants it done perfectly. <clears throat> and where does it begin? God pulls out people and he places his spirit in them, and at the end he talks about the importance of uh, the Sabbath, that they need to, to rest, and this is how God is going to sanctify them and set them apart as a nation. All right, yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to go off into a whole discussion of the Sabbath if we do that. But um, what I would say is that the New Testament's approach to the Sabbath is totally, totally different. That, that the picture of the Sabbath is that there is a rest for God's people. And the rest is not necessarily a physical rest, it's a spiritual rest. That we have, uh, Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in Hebrews, it talks about there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Um, so this is a very quick version. I believe in the New Testament, it's actually very clear that, that um, the requirement to keep one day uh, apart and do nothing on that day, no work, is actually part of the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, it's a spiritual Sabbath. I think that the principle of taking one day and setting it aside for God and doing no work. I think God would bless that if, if we did it, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's requ required. <clears throat> what happens is if you don't do that, it's real easy, I think, personally, uh, 
to forget that all days belong to God. Um, it's like not tithing. You begin to forget that your money doesn't belong to God. But, um, but to work on the Sabbath, I don't think is, a, is a, uh, an issue where as Christians we'd say, no, I, I quit this job over that. So uh, that's a much, much broader issue. We've actually touched on it several times in here. But if you look, the New Testament actually repeats all the Ten Commandments with the exception of the Sabbath. And there it says, don't judge one another according to Sabbaths or feast days and, and what you do. So um, anyways, what I, the, the, the tabernacle, we may think this is minor compared to the creation of the universe. It's not minor compared to the creation of the universe. We've said this before, how much time does God give to describing the creation of the entire universe? One chapter. And he gives one quarter of Genesis to the design and building of the tabernacle. This work is a much greater work than this one is. Salvation is a much greater work than the physical creation. The physical creation is the work of God's fingers, it says in Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens the work of your fingers. But salvation is not the work of God's fingers. Salvation requires all of God's strength. It requires his right arm to bring us into salvation. Now, what's the next great work of God? It's the church. And the tabernacle is going to foreshadow that. It's the church uh, of God is the next great work. We are a part of the next great work of God. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, let, me, let me back up here, and I have to be careful because these are works of God. This isn't a work of God, but the incarnation. Um, I remember a professor at Biola saying that the greatest work of God in history was not raising Christ from the dead, but may, bringing God and man together, the incarnation. I don't know if he's right or not, but it's just an interesting thing that, that to, to, to take God and man and make them one, uh, that's an amazing miracle. Uh, the incarnation of Christ, um, when he comes, he comes and he tabernacles among us. He is the living representation of the tabernacle. Uh, do you remember how, uh, what happens for this to happen? Remember Mary, when she says to God, uh, she's told you're going to bear a son, and she says, but I'm a virgin. What does God say? The Spirit of God will come upon you, and the, Holy, or the, whole, or the Father will overshadow you, and you will be with child. Uh, obviously, this one begins with the Spirit of God and doesn't just begin with the Spirit of God all through his life. And it's interesting because Jesus, one of the big battles he has the entire time he's here is the battle over the Sabbath. It's, it's continuous. He keeps talking to them about the Sabbath because they're so hung up on the Sabbath. The church is the body of Christ. And just like the tabernacle, the church is God's work. It's God's plan. It's God's idea. And just like the tabernacle, he does it by filling men and women with the Spirit of God and giving us jobs to do 
But it's actually even more than that because we aren't just building from the outside. We are part of the building itself. It's actually an amazing thing. When you look back, and this is what I always do when I read through scripture, and maybe you do it too. I read about Bezalel and Aholiab, and I think, boy, that would have been really special to been those two men. I mean, maybe you look at it and say that would have been a lot of work. But, but to have been chosen by God to be that involved in the work, that should, I mean, you just have to say, wow, that's really cool. I mean, really, the three men who are, are head and shoulders above all the else when it comes to the tabernacle are Moses, who gets the plans, and Bezael and Holiab, who are the ones who carry it out. When that tabernacle is built, they're going to stand back and see their handiwork directed by God. Just like when this building is built over here, they're going to be, all, all of us are going to look and go, wow, this is cool. But there are people who have been involved the entire way through from getting the land to doing the plans to meeting and figuring out and their appreciation is that much greater right you, they look at it in a whole different way than than those of us who are standing back looking at it it's just the way it is so you look at these two men and you go wow what an incredible opportunity all right but let's think about you uh you have been called by name right right every one of us not only called by name, but given a new name. Every one of us have been filled with the Spirit. And every one of us is involved in building a new tabernacle. Now, it talks about it being the body of Christ and the temple uh, in the New Testament. But the idea is the same thing. We are building a, um, we are part of God's work on this earth. Um, if you go to, um, Ephesians <clears throat> and it's actually well let's do this go to first Peter before we go to uh, Ephesians first Peter chapter 2 uh, Peter talks about this in verse 4 um, says as you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cho chosen corner, uh, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Um, I, I, I don't even quite know how to communicate this, but what we see in the Old Testament is a physical building being worked on by people. But in the New Testament, we are part of the building. We are... Uh, the, the tabernacle, which represents God's plan of salvation and everything necessary to come to God, that is embodied by Christ when he's on earth, and now it is represented to the entire world through his body, which is us. Um, what's the most common phrase to tell us that we are uh, believers in the New Testament? It's that we are in Christ. 
We are part of that tabernacle, but we're not static. We are growing and we are maturing. And it says in there, you're growing and becoming living stones and you are part of this, you're offering sacrifices. So the picture is, is mind expanding as to what's happening. Uh, when we go to Ephesians, <clears throat> um, this is where Paul really deals with the, the, the idea of the building. Um, um, begins, Ephesians begin with talking about all that God has done to set us apart for himself. Not unlike setting aside Be Bezael and Aholiab. <laughs> they have been set aside. He's called our name. We are drawn in. Um, chapter 2, of course, talks about what he has to do to make us useful for him. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he has made us alive to him. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in him. And then really from here until the middle of chapter four, the entire picture is that of us being incorporated into the body of Christ, God taking our gifts and using them for his purposes, for the purpose of bringing salvation and for the purpose of glorifying God. So what comes next it says, um, talks about the Gentiles who were brought in. Um, verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is a picture of the tabernacle, folks. There was that outer curtain. What was its purpose? It was to keep people, the Gentiles, out. And God says, I'm tearing that wall down. Everybody can come in. We're going to bring the Gentiles in. We are incorporated into the body of Christ. Um, then it says, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing uh, the hostility talks about how he came and preached peace. And then finally in verse 20, that this is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. It's the exact picture of the tabernacle, a place where God's spirit dwelt among his people but we get to be a part of that. So when you look at these men, Bezael and Aholiab, don't look at them, uh, they were special in the Old Testament, right? But, but you are just as much a part of the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle as they are. If you are a believer, God has taken you, he has gifted you, he has placed you into his body, and, and then our, our responsibility then is to allow him to do what he wants to do uh, through us. 
And as you go on through Ephesians, you see the whole body analogy that we are one and that um, we're the body of Christ. We have gifts and that God uses us to build each other up so that the, the body is made perfect. So um, I think there's a lot more that probably could be brought out of uh, Bezael and Aholiab, but I think it really brings us back to the importance of the tabernacle. Uh, physical creation is nothing. That's a God speaks and it's there. The tabernacle is God's plan and it's there to bring men to God and it's there to give God glory. And in the incarnation and in Christ's church, we see the fulfillment of the tabernacle, that people actually are brought to Christ, that this temple is a living, growing temple, and each one of us has a part, uh, the gifts that God has given to us. So um, any comments or questions? I know that's... The temple built by Solomon is modeled after the tabernacle, but it is not, um, it is not exactly modeled after the tabernacle. And it was, the, um, it was where God chose to dwell because the ark was there. But um, it, it's, it's interesting. I think the tabernacle is, pro my own opinion, I, uh, the tabernacle is actually what God designed. You have all of those same elements in the temple, um, but uh, I don't know if it, if it is quite the same as the tabernacle itself, because I think there was a lot of sort of the work of man built in there. Some of it may have been done for man's glory rather than God's glory, but that's my own opinion. It may be that God said the tabernacle, the temple is also uh, a perfect representation of, of my salvation. You got to follow up. I read something about about God. It was talking in terms of God's dwelling places. That you know, he, he was in the Garden of Eden. Then the next time he's going to be dwelling with mankind in the temple or tabernacle. The then the third time is in the temple, and then the fourth time is in Christ. Yeah, yeah, and it's the same the same idea. So you, I would I would probably link these two together: tabernacle and temple. Are, are similar. I just think the tabernacle is, is special even in comparison to te the temple. Um,
It sounds like it, yeah, ties in, ties in perfectly. Um, I, had, I had some thoughts along that line. When it comes to the tabernacle, uh, the tabernacle is entirely God's idea. No one else thought of a tabernacle. Um, it was built according to his plan, under his direction and guidance, through people that he had gifted to do the work, um, to provide redemption for his people and entirely for his glory. And that exact same thing can be said about the church. Right? Um, in fact, if you go to the New Testament, the beginning, the whole problem was understanding how God was going to bring Jews and Gentiles together. The idea of the church was not uh, natural to the Jews, and Paul fought that his entire ministry. How, how do we bring the Jews and the Gentiles together? So we can say exactly, just as the tabernacle was God's idea, the church is entirely God's idea. No one else would have thought of that. Just as the, the tabernacle was built according to the plan of God, the church is built according to the plan of God. Uh, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not withstand or stand against it. Um, just as the tabernacle is constructed under the plan and guidance of God, or the direction and guidance, the church is being built according to the direction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, just as skilled people were involved in the construction of the tabernacle, God gifts his people to be involved in the, the building of the church. I'll get you in a second, Darla. Just as the tabernacle was there for redemption, the church is given to the world and to us as a means of redemption. It's obviously through Jesus Christ, but the church is the body of Christ. It represents the same thing. And it's all done for God's glory, the tabernacle and what happens in the church. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians. We just didn't look at it. You know, I thought about Acts. Um, it's it, what what I it's it's narrative like Exodus. So I was kind of hoping to dig into something that had some you know meaty doctrine parts. But I actually did think about Acts because it it is really the same thing. The story of the building of God's church, just like this is the building of Tamarack. Very good, Darla. Okay, well, may, maybe we'll do that. We'll have to see. So. Uh, it really, I mean, I've heard that said, that Acts and Exodus are really the same. One is the building of the, the nation of Israel, and the other is the building of the church. It's really the two themes of that. Rod. I don't know whether this is correct or not, but Scott struck me as you were talking about the tabernacle, the tabernacle being God's idea. But in Ephesians, it says that we have no way of reaching up to God. We have no idea how to get to God. And, and so God in his mercy has reached to us. And in that tabernacle is a demonstration of our inability to reach to God. We would never have had that kind of an idea of how to claim our own redemption before him. Yeah. Well, actually, the people did, and I, f I forgot about that at the beginning. I, I found this to be really interesting. At the exact same time that God is appointing uh, Bezael and Aholiab to do the work, uh, construct the tabernacle. A even as they're speaking, the people are asking Aaron to build a golden calf. Aaron isn't appointed to build a golden calf. And it's the difference between the way that man approaches God and the way that God 
does. The care and the plan of the tabernacle was beyond anything. Remember what, uh, what Aaron's excuse was for where the golden calf came from? I threw it into the fire and out came this golden calf. The, the, the difference between that and God saying, here is this incredible tabernacle and I'm going to superintend every single part of it and it is going to be a picture of salvation compared to Aaron throwing gold into the fire and out coming a golden calf. That, that's the difference between the way that man reaches to God and the way that God reaches to us. And of course, when we look at Jesus Christ and coming and tabernacling with us and living and dying, uh, the plan of salvation, of course, takes on uh, so much more meaning than even you see in the tabernacle. So, okay. But well, we're a little bit, oh, any other comments on this, this section? So now at least you can say you've heard somebody, whether I did a good job or not, you can hear, say somebody taught on Bezael. Anybody else ever heard us, anybody talk about Bezael and Aholiab? I, I never have. And, and in fact, it was hard to even find anything on it. So, um, but, but I think they're important. I think they get a lot of time in scripture and, and it's, I think it's because we tend to ignore the tabernacle and don't understand how important it is looking forward to what God is going to do.